Welcome to Professors Talk Pedagogy, a podcast from the Academy for Teaching and Learning at Baylor University. I'm your host, Christopher Richman. Professors Talk Pedagogy presents discussions with great professors about pedagogy, curriculum, and learning in order to propel the virtuous cycle of teaching. As we frankly and critically investigate our teaching, we open new lines of inquiry, we engage in conversation with colleagues, and we attune to students' experiences, all of which not only improves our teaching, but enriches and motivates ongoing investigation. And so the cycle continues. Today, our guest is Dr. Anne Marie Schultz, Professor of Philosophy and Director of the Baylor Interdisciplinary Corps. In her scholarship, Dr. Schultz focuses on Greek philosophy, Augustine, and interdisciplinary humanities. She has published several articles on teaching philosophy, and she is one of the regular facilitators of Baylor's Summer Faculty Institute. This year, Dr. Schultz was named a Baylor Master Teacher, the highest honor for teaching awarded by the university. We are delighted to have Dr. Schultz on the show to talk about mentoring teachers, metaphors for teaching, and literature on teaching that speaks to the heart, and so much more. Well, Anne-Marie Schultz, thank you for joining the show today and for being with us. Sure, I'm happy to be here. I would like to begin by just hearing from you for the sake of our listeners, uh, how long you've been at Baylor and what various roles you've had. Okay, sure. I came to Baylor in 1993. So this is the start. I'm into my 27th year of teaching now. And it now also means I'm 54 years old and I have now been at Baylor half of my life. <laughs> so that's When a- you put it that way. <laughs> And after this, it will be more time being a Baylor Bear than not having been a Baylor Bear. So now it's (laughs) 50-50. So I consider that kind of an auspicious year. Yeah. You know, it's kind of interesting marking that. So at the end of my 23rd year is when I was awarded the Master Teacher Award. And so then I'm moving forward into the next stage of my Baylor existence with that designation. But um. I've had, which is really incredibly valuable to me. I know we're going to talk a little bit about that later, but in terms of roles I've had, um, when I started at Baylor, I was an assistant professor on tenure track in the philosophy department. And at that time, Baylor wasn't quite as research oriented. So even people who are on tenure track, if you didn't have a PhD program, you taught a 4-4 load. If you had a PhD program, you taught a 3-3 load. so the first three or four years of my life were of my life at Baylor were even though I had research expectations were very research were very teaching heavy um, and I think there are some benefits to that in the sense that I got a lot of practice at teaching very early on in my career taught a lot of the same classes each semester so I was really able to kind of immediately say you know I'm going to try something different this semester and so I think that really set me in a lot of ways on a path of becoming really interested in teaching and pedagogy in general. And some of the first articles I actually published were really about classroom practices. And I found that easier at the time to write about than really just trying to delve in and write the book on Plato, you know. So that was kind of the first stage of my existence. Not long after I got tenure, Baylor's philosophy department did get a PhD program. And so 
we then moved to, I moved to having a 2-2 teaching load. Um, and that really is when my <laughs> research really picked up. I mean, the downside, obviously, of teaching that much is I was a little bit lagged behind my peers in terms of research productivity. Uh, then we always had had an MA program, so I wasn't unfamiliar with teaching graduate students. That was also a real benefit of coming to Baylor, even though I didn't realize what a benefit that would be at the time that I did get to teach graduate students regularly. But then I started working with some with with graduate students and the next role I actually say I'd have is being a graduate program director in the philosophy department. And I did that I, two or three years, three years maybe. Uh, I really liked that because I got to meet every single graduate student and check in with them, hear how their progress was going. Uh, somewhere in there, I also started teaching the graduate teaching seminar that our philosophy department has to make uh, our philosophy teachers prepared to be excellent classroom educators themselves. And then in 2008, I became director of the Baylor Interdisciplinary Corps. Um, and I've been doing that, I guess now for, wow, quite some time. I think this, I guess this is my 12th year. So I've, I've had a couple of sabbaticals uh, or research leaves there. So it, it, I did have a couple of semesters at least where I wasn't doing that. And I'll probably do that a little while longer. Uh, don't know exactly how much longer. And probably I'll go back and teach in the philosophy department and just really, you know, fault. I'll probably still teach some classes in the BIC, but you know, I think, that's a long time to be in an administrative role. And I think there'll be some things that are nice about returning to be a regular faculty member. <laughs> so yeah, well, you've had, that there's another phase coming. <laughs> so. And well, and, and you've had various, various roles clearly in, 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 and you've seen, you've been at Baylor long enough to have seen the changes that you're talking about Absolutely. in terms of research. Yeah, I, mean, I really have lived through them. You know, I feel like I've really grown along with Baylor's growth, and I feel like, I, you know, I've only had one academic job, but I really do feel like I've had numerous jobs and numerous opportunities for growth within the single job of Baylor. I've heard you speak about this with new faculty or, or junior faculty, like in our Summer Faculty Institute, about how, as you just mentioned, you had, you had a 4-4 teaching load to begin with, Mm -hmm. as an assistant professor, and that's not the case for our junior faculty on the tenure track now. Not at all. <laughs> yeah, so it's a, different, it's a different world that they're coming into. And uh, so what do, you think are, what, what do you think are the gains or the losses of that for the faculty who are beginning in, in the current situation? Well, um, one of the things that was really great about teaching that much also was that I really had students for repeated classes. You know? And so I might have a student take five or six classes with me. You know, if they happen to take, you know, and become a philosophy major, they really, I knew the undergraduates much more than I do now. It's highly unlikely that any single undergraduate student now would have me for more than two classes. And probably in all likely, unless they took a bit class with me and then took a philosophy class or something like that. I mean, they're just a handful or if I'm directing an honors thesis or something. So I, I do consider that something of a loss. And I imagine that would be true for anyone really focusing on their research and only teaching two classes. It's not that, it's not that you aren't still a caring and Christian educator to the students that you have, but the ability to really be with the student throughout their undergraduate career is really, that's, that's probably to some degree a loss. And then um, 
I mean, benefits, you know, particularly with the tier one aspirations, I mean, I was behind for sure. I mean, you know, I wasn't publishing when I got tenure at the rate of an R1 person. Um, but I think we can expect that at a 2-2 load or you know, whatever is comparable to that, we will have a more earlier trajectory and people will get into the publishing stream much sooner. And that's a real benefit. Um, and so how to balance, you know, both of those two strong commitments that Baylor has is, I think, both a collective challenge, but also an individual challenge. And, then, and people have to figure out for themselves how they're going to do that. Um, right. So those would be the biggest two things I'd say. Well, so let's talk about your most recent uh, award, the, the designation of master teacher. What does that, what does that mean to you? Oh, it's just, I mean, it's thrilling. I mean, I, and I have to say that it came in the midst of the pandemic has been a real lifesaver, <laughs> you know, like when every, really swimming around and all of this uncertainty and dealing with a new mode of teaching, it was really a wonderful sense of recognition for the work I've done. Um, so that's, that's one thing, the timing was just excellent. <laughs> um, the other thing, you know, I've, I've told this story in other contexts, but I, mean, I think it bears repeating. Um, you know, I actually took the two things about that. I took a, my very first faculty meeting, actually, my chair at the time, Robert Baird, received the master teacher designation. So early on in my, you know, really from my earliest days on campus, I was aware that there was something called the master teacher. And not only that, my department chair was a master teacher. And so that to me set the standard pretty high, pretty early on, you know, and, and I, Bob was an amazing, amazing uh, mentor for me and really gave me a lot of good advice about teaching, was also just an exemplary teacher himself. And so to kind of receive, to be in that echelon of teachers is really meaningful to me. Another master teacher, Tom Hanks, also was there from the very beginning of my Baylor career. I took what was then called the Summer Teaching Institute. Uh, Bob actually arranged for me to be able to take it the, the summer before I started at Baylor. Yeah. So I was hanging out, not really having any income <laughs> yet. <laughs> and then I was offered 20% of my salary and after being a starving graduate student for five years, the idea to come and take something like the Summer Teaching Institute and get to me though it seemed like an enormous sum of money at that time was really great. <laughs> and the person directing that was Tom Hanks. And so again, really early on, had a lot of preparation for teaching uh, from the Summer Teaching Institute. In some ways, maybe I took it a little too soon because I didn't actually have a ton of teaching experience from graduate school. I, I think I'd only taught, because I'd been on so many fellowships, I had actually only TA'd for one class and maybe taught two classes. And they were big, huge classes, you know, at Penn State. So I wasn't really well prepared for the reality of the Baylor classroom. But the Summer Teaching Institute helped. But a lot of the theory of the pedagogy was a little kind of over my head at the time because I just didn't have enough practical experience early on to really filter what was important. Um, but then once I kind of got into the classroom and said, oh, I do think that early exposure to Summer Teaching Institute did begin to get me interested in the theory behind pedagogy. So uh, that's a little bit about master teacher. Um, so I, I just, I knew, and I also, the other great thing um, 
about early exposure to the Summer Teaching Institute and also my early involvement with the BIC is I was exposed to a range of teachers from very early on. And I, and they, I saw how people taught. Uh, I saw what kind of worked, sometimes what kind of didn't work. I say, you know, I wouldn't do it that way, but for me, this might work. And I think a lot of teachers don't have that experience of really being in a supportive team taught environment. But I just saw the bar at Baylor for teaching is high. You know, and it, I hope it continues to be high, you know, as, as we, and so to be awarded that highest designation in a very, I won't say competitive, just a supportive and really striving toward excellence community of teachers and learners is um, just meaningful. You know, I know that in some way, you know, one of the teachings of the Bhagavad Gita is, you know, from World Cultures One is we have the rights to being attached to the labor of our work, but not so much the fruit of it, right? But I have to admit, there's a little bit of attachment to the fruit in this particular, <laughs> in this particular context. <laughs> you, you need to do more yoga then. <laughs> Indeed, I do. <laughs> so. so you mentioned the, what, you, what you've been calling the Summer Teacher Institute and things kind of have come full circle for you as, as you've been a co-facilitator of what's now being the called the Summer Faculty Institute. Yeah. That's another so how, about that one. <laughs> yeah, how long have you been uh, involved in that as in some kind of leadership role? Pretty long time. Um, it was sometime in the Sloan era that I started doing it. I don't remember the exact date. Um, and I wasn't, that was another one. I think I probably did that a little too soon. <laughs> but, but I was actually involved with, I think, the first time I did it, it was still the Summer Teaching Institute. And, you know, during, um, it was right after I got, it was not long after I got tenure. So I guess maybe 2000 was the first time that I uh, did it. And, but I was involved along with Tom in recognizing the changing emphasis on research. I mean, though Tom has always, as you know, been a, you, you need to be a productive researcher to really be part of the scholarly conversation. As much as he is an excellent teacher, he's, um, but we changed it to be called the Summer Faculty Institute. I wanted to call it the uh, Institute for Faculty Flourishing, but Tom thought that was. <laughs> but th that is the idea of how can you be a flourishing faculty member, excelling in teaching, excelling in research, and being an excellent colleague. And so it shifted from being about teaching primarily to being partly about teaching, partly about research, partly about how to bring those things into greater coherence and then what it and then a lot just about navigating the waters of Baylor um, you know and you know getting people acculturated to Baylor's unique culture um, I mean a lot of people who are faculty members at Baylor have some background with Baylor but not all I mean and so it can be a really different environment to for someone coming out of just you know R1 kind of background, no Christian commitment in the overall aspect of the university to a research one Christian institution can take some special navigation skills sometimes. And so that, that's another sub, I guess, explicit part of the Summer Faculty Institute. And Tom and I did it many years. And then, you know, um, then I, I think there was an additional pull for me. You know, I hadn't, I actually got tenure just with articles. I didn't, but I've always had this book project in mind. 
And I think as I was looking, beginning to look toward Full Professor, I was really kind of thinking, you know, I've really got to get that book done. And so I backed out of the Summer Teaching Institute for a while and Lenore did it with Tom. And I think Andy did it a couple years within there. And I guess it's, then we started a kind of rotations. Then I came back. I came back after I got full professor. So I guess I came back in maybe 2013, 2014. And I've probably done it three out of those last six years. So, you know, long, long range, but also pretty significant gap <laughs> in doing it too. Well, and it's a pretty significant time commitment for mm -hmm. the co for for the participants, but also for the facilitators, Absolutely. as you are essentially leading leading four or five hours of class four or five days a week, and it's a pretty intensive experience. There's a lot of planning that goes in as a facilitator too. So, what has been what has been most rewarding for you to be able to serve as something of a, a, a of a a mentor to younger faculty or faculty who are newer to Baylor? Well, one thing that's great about the Summer Faculty Institute in general, and why I would encourage any faculty member to do it, is you really meet people from across the university. A large number of people really just know people in their department. And maybe a little bit through committee work, you might know someone or you might know someone because you go to church together. But you're just in a huge bonding experience with people from across the university. And that was also really helpful for me early on. You know, I was like, oh, I know people and not just little people in my department, but I, you know, there was many years I went to lunch once a week with a group of faculty that I met in the Summer Teaching Institute. As an as a more established, I want <laughs> older faculty member, I have actually really enjoyed that same thing. And I would say in any summer faculty work, there's usually just one or two people I really end up connecting with and we maintain a connection um, even after that. And so it keeps me in contact with the younger generation of Baylor faculty and not just in my Vic department or in my philosophy department, but across the university. And so I feel like it's helping keeping me current, let's say, <laughs> yeah, and, and hearing the concern. The other thing is great, you know, you might have a challenging situation in your department. And then when you hear someone else in the department has a similar challenging situation, it, it, it can make you, it can make your problems seem a little less like your own problems and just realize that's just part of going through tenure track or something. So I think that's good. But um, one of the things I've really enjoyed about directing the BIC is a similar thing that I have enjoyed about um, the Summer Faculty Institute. I really like mentoring faculty. I, I, it's, it's what I absolutely love the best about the BIC, and I like that about the Summer Faculty Institute, too. I really consider that, in a lot of ways, just a very refined way of teaching. Yeah. It's like, you know, just as teaching graduate students is different than teaching undergraduates. Teaching faculty members how to be faculty members is just a different extension of, in a lot of ways, my teaching skills. And so I think that mentorship role for me, I've really come to see it as part of my overall pedagogical practice too. One of the discussions I've heard you lead at Summer Faculty Institute, which I really find fascinating is the the metaphors for teaching discussion mm -hmm. yeah. and so you know we can we can all have these sometimes not very well articulated uh, ideas of of 
kind of what's the analogy, what's the metaphor that I use for what I'm doing as a teacher? Am I, mm-hmm. am I a tour guide? Am I a dinner, a dinner host? Mm-hmm. Uh, one that I heard just a couple of days ago from an instructional designer is a conductor beginning, mm-hmm. you know, having to have helping the students to get on the track at the beginning and get off the track, whether that's the end of the class period or the end of the unit or the end of the semester, you know, just leading them from point A to, to point B. So what metaphors are you really attracted to right now or, or are playing with right now? Uh, that's a good one. Um, there's always, you know, there's Plato's allegory of the cave where the prisoner is released from chains and leaves the cave and goes into the light. <laughs> and I think <laughs> in a way, I feel like us being in the Zoom room is almost like being thrown into the cave, right? Because you're seeing images of people, right? And there's images <laughs> being held up and figuring out how am I going to read these pedagogical images in this way and bring the skills that I have to bear in this new environment so that I can be the kind of educator who leads people out. Um, or, and, and by that, I don't mean leaves the cave behind, but lets people be aware that the cave that they maybe have grown up on is not in is not it's not the only cave in town let's say <laughs> that mm-hmm. and it's good to, it's good to get out of the cave and see your cave from a higher experience but it's also good I read a really interesting book recently and reviewed it called a plato's caves and the author rebecca lemoyne actually argues really persuasively that P- plato is actually a huge advocate for cultural diversity and she actually sees the metaphor of a cave and a cave and a cave. And then there's value in a cave member from somewhere else coming into a different cave because it serves a philosophical purpose. You know, much like we want students to study abroad, that to leave the Baylor context and have their education in another cave, right? And she sees that as really a pervasive metaphor in the platonic dialogues. And so that's, that's one of the reasons I've been thinking about the cave a lot. Um, and you now they're also in Plato's cave. There are these um, people are holding up the image, image the puppets, you know, and in the image. And early on in my student career and my teaching career, I think I sort of saw the cave people holding up the image as kind of negative or manipulative. But now I see that we can hold up an image to help get people out of the cave too, you know. Um, to you know, bear witness and be a testament to how I've changed through being a teacher, through being a student. And that, that can be an image that you hold up in your classroom cave that can lead people out also. Yeah, what I think is so powerful about using metaphors is that it, it, it helps you to see how interrelated the teaching and the learning process is because you can't talk about what your metaphor for being a teacher is without by implication saying what the learners are in that. So, you know, you're using the cave, then you're already thinking about, well, if I'm one who's helping them leave the cave, then that means that they come to me with these preconceived ideas about what reality is or what this subject is, and that forms their cave. Mm-hmm. And so you can't, you can't really do a one-sided view of what teaching is. Yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, I, you know, the, in a certain way, the conductor metaphor, I mean, a musician conductor, not a train conductor, mm. uh, in some ways that resonates with me because I played music as um, throughout all the way up through college. I played clarinet and played in a lot of 
band and orchestra kind of settings. And so I had the real sense of, you know, you can't make that kind of music alone, right? And so that is also really shaped, particularly my experience of what I expect of students in the classroom, that I really have a generally a highly participatory environment in the classroom, um, struggling with ways to make that feel easy on Zoom. But, um, and that, that aspect of what studentship is, I think is very much shaped by, by my experiences of being a musician, um, that we have to make the music of the classroom together. And I see myself more as facilitating that process more than conducting that process. Yeah, so I mean, I don't, the guide on the side, I, I don't, maybe it's a guiding, but it, I really am getting the people out of the cave, but it's more, I like the dinner party metaphor too, because of thinking of you're hosting a dinner party, all that goes into that and making sure everyone feels welcome and everyone feels like they have a seat at the table and that some things will, the people will like, but maybe you're going to challenge them and create some strange dessert that people might want chocolate and instead it's like pomegranate ice cream or something. You know, that, that metaphor kind of resonates with me too. Uh, that one I actually got from Yo-Yo Ma in one of his podcasts that uh, he did with, um, I think it's actually Krista Tippett interviewed him. And he talked a lot about his view of himself as a performer as being like that too. So yeah, that's uh, beautiful. It really is. It's a, it's a wonderful um, podcast. It, should, it talks a lot about also the role of beauty in our lives and how transformative the experience of beauty is for us. Well, as they say in the podcast world, we'll get that in the show notes for, <laughs> <Okay>. our, <laughs> for our listeners. <laughs> you mentioned that you have uh, have been teaching graduate students in, in, in their teaching formation, a pedagogy seminar. So what are you learning about training teachers or teaching teachers from that experience? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I think one of, this goes for early faculty too. I, th I think one of the preconceptions that people have about what teaching is early on is that it's about the delivery of content okay? mm -hmm. and that their job somehow is to get as much philosophy into the brains of students as possible. And, you know, I think there are lots of reasons for that. Generally speaking, that's how people probably have experienced their role as a student is that they're receiving this information. And to get students to let go of that and see that actually, I think in the classroom, less is often more. Okay? I mean, I do have the benefit of teaching in a discipline that my philosophy class isn't like Spanish one where you have to accomplish certain things in Spanish one in order for people to take Spanish two or like the sciences are kind of more like that. So I do feel lucky in the sense that I'm a little bit um, free from the feeling of my job is to get them to get students to be interested in philosophy. And it's not, and a lot of it is that getting rid of the content mm -hmm. mentality. Unfortunately, a lot of what I'm seeing in zoom land actually is reinforcing to me this idea that yeah, I think unfortunately that's really most people's view of pedagogy still, you know, is that it's the content dump. Mm -hmm. And even just so some of the trainings that we receive, it's clear that that's the model or the modality that they're trying to put in the online context rather than other metaphors we might use. <laughs> um, yeah. The other biggest, the other biggest- Well, even the, I would just say, even the, even the language that's used, um, you know, is frequently like uh, delivery, 
Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and, and as much as I love our, I love the, the folks in the instructional design world because they're, they're great partners with Centers for Teaching and Learning and, and faculty in general, uh, you do hear that, that terminology a lot. And that's not value-free to say delivery. Right, exactly, exactly. So I think it's, it, there's that tinging of value. So I do what I can to get the graduate students away from that. And then if I also were to say kind of one of my biggest, oh, teaching tricks <laughs> is really being, uh, practices, I guess I'll say, uh, is being willing to really meet and see the students where they are. Um, and, not, and I learned that probably mostly from Tom. Um, or just watching him model that so consistently. And so that does mean I really do have to see what, what is their cave? What are they really seeing as the shadows? And I have to start whatever I'm teaching from there. Okay? Even if I have an other experience in mind, I can't start from there and talk down to the students. I have to be an experiencing with the students in order to really transform their learning experience. And Sometimes I think maybe particularly philosophers <laughs> have a lot of, but academics in general, I have a fair bit of struggles with arrogance, I guess I'll say. And unfortunately, that often translates into the classroom. Um, and so coaxing students to let go of that, I have to be the authority or I want you to see how smart I am. And even if you still feel that way, if you can moderate your feelings so that it doesn't really come out in the classroom. But those are really my two main goals um, in teaching. And how that shaped me as a teacher is a good question. I'm going to ponder that and maybe circle back around to it. Well, the great irony, I think, for graduate students and, and newer faculty is that chronologically speaking, these are, the, these are folks who are closest to that undergraduate experience. And yet, probably, probably because of the intensive graduate student training experience, they're the ones who often have the hardest time coming down mm -hmm. to where the students are because they've been spending so much time in the minutia of the scholarship and at that level, mm -hmm. uh, it can be a real hard adjustment. Yeah. I know what I wanted to say now. Um, it didn't happen so much in the graduate teaching class, but it actually happened in my Plato seminar. And I had, one of the things that's kind of interesting about the Baylor PhD program is often we have students in our program who were students of our former students. Um, so there's like a generational kind of thing that's happening now and that's really interesting to see. But one of my students said that his, one of our former students just really never taught him Plato because he didn't feel comfortable doing it. And so I really wanted my people who had taken the Plato seminar to leave that Plato seminar feeling like they could put an area of competency at least on ancient philosophy. And so I started teaching the Platonic dialogues and the Plato seminar with an eye to where does education arise? You know, what kind of models and metaphors of teaching are actually occurring there? And then <laughs> that went pretty well. <laughs> and then I kind of flipped it into the graduate seminar as well. I said, you know what? rather than just focusing on teaching techniques or having you come in and talk about uh, how to make a teaching philosophy statement, I said, you know, let's start that class reading some Plato together, some, some dialogues that really have high pedagogical content, like the opening of the Protagoras. And that's been great. 
I mean, that, that really shaped the experience of teaching also for us to just have a kind of mini almost Plato seminar together where they're kind of, and asking them to reflect on what are the kinds of things that I'm doing as I'm teaching you and modeling, you know, little mini talks on the allegory of the cave or something. And so the combination of those two modes of teaching graduate students has shaped both of those graduate classes, I'd say. But that's really only happened, I would say, in the past mm, six years, maybe. Um, it didn't, it took me a long time to actually kind of connect, interconnect those two graduate teaching experiences. And I think both classes now are the better for it. And I'll give you a little plug too, because you wrote beautifully about this experience in the Call to Teach collection. Mm -hmm. uh, got, you got a, a great essay about kind of just walking us through that, that your experience yeah. uh, of, of that and the trials and errors of that. So that's wonderful. Yeah. I'm, I'm uh, well, I know we're, I know we're close to our time here. Uh, last question that I wanted to ask you is what, what literature on teaching and learning do you think is, has been most informative for you? I would say Bell Hooks's work and Parker Palmer's work. Those, those are the works on teaching that speak most to my heart and are aspirational for me. Yeah. I actually had bell hooks. Uh, I talk about this a little bit actually in my um, second Plato book, uh, Plato's Public Philosophy, Plato's Socrates on Socrates. Uh, but I had the good fortune of reading bell hooks' teaching to transgress very early in my teaching career in 1994. And that really transformed my sense of what I was striving to be as an educator. Um, mm -hmm. And all of her, I mean, she has, I think, at least three books specifically on teaching. And that also modeled a kind of scholarship of teaching to me, how reflective she was about her own yep. experiences in the classroom. And Parker Palmer just, I don't know, speaks to something deep <laughs> in my soul. <laughs> and wants to be a better person in all contexts. And so, you know, it's not like, they aren't, I guess, highly technical, really, or theoretical in their approaches to teaching, but they share so authentically that it's yep. really like the kind of person I am as a, in the classroom and outside the classroom, too. And as you said, the, I think the key word there is reflective. They, they really take the time to, it, you know, they, they put it in print, but they model for us a way to teach and then think about what just happened, what mm -hmm. worked, what didn't work, what was going on in terms of the, the personal, interpersonal stuff, the power dynamics, you know, mm -hmm. all the human stuff that are, that's involved in teaching that can so easily get forgotten if we're just moving along in the syllabus from day to day to day, thinking about what we've covered, what we still have yet to cover. Exactly. And, you know, I think that that, uh, that reflectivity, that's a really good way of putting it. I, it, it pushed me even more in that direction of doing that in my own classes. And that, that is really what I think hooked me on, wow, teaching is really pretty philosophically interesting. <laughs> <laughs> that's good for a philosophy professor to say that too. Yeah, exactly. So, and, and that's been, I think that's been really the key to my real enjoyment of being in the classroom. I mean, partly it's the students, but it's also partly how much the classroom is an occasion for my own growth in an ongoing way. Great. So we're about at time here. Did you have any final thoughts or, or words good, for us? That's a good place to um, end. And I've really enjoyed, I love talking about teaching too with other people. That's another great thing about the SFI is you get to talk about 
what's great about teaching at Baylor with a bunch of other people. So, great, so this great. was another occasion like that. So thank you. And we're bringing exactly. that Baylor experience out more broadly. Yeah, so. All right. Well, Anne-Marie Schultz, thank you for joining the show today. Yeah. We really appreciate your time. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Our thanks again to Anne-Marie Schultz for joining us today. You can visit the show notes for links to the wide range of resources we mentioned in our conversation, including the work of Bell Hooks and Parker Palmer, and Dr. Schultz's own writing on Plato's Allegory of the Cave as an educational metaphor, and her essay on mentoring graduate student teachers in our Called to Teach collection. That's our show. Join us next time for Professors Talk Pedagogy.